You're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 151. So how do you, when you have a purpose, fulfill what you're supposed to do? Attention gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, gift biz gal, Sue Monheit. In honor of March being Women's History Month, I want to take you back in time. We will be talking with Lady Bird Johnson, the wife of the 36th President of the United States, Lyndon B. Johnson. Lady Bird Johnson's life spans the 20th century from 1912 to 2007. This is a century in which the role of women changed dramatically. Lady Bird herself said that her life was a part for which I never rehearsed. So as not to interrupt the continuity of this fabulous interview, I'm just going to insert here a message from our sponsor. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of the Ribbon Print Company. Create custom ribbons right in your store or craft studio in seconds. Visit theribbonprintcompany.com for more information. Please join me in welcoming Lady Bird Johnson to be with us here today. Well, thank you so much, Sue. I'm so pleased to be with you today. I am so honored that you've taken some time to share with us today. And I want to start out our talk, as I always do, and that is by having you share what a candle would look like that really resonates with you. And what I mean by that is, if you were to pick a special color that would be on your candle, and then a saying or a motto or something that always drives you forward, what would this candle look like by color and word? Well, my candle would be yellow like Texas yellow stars and large buttercups and four-nerved daisies, the flowers are planted by the hundreds in the hill country of Texas, and then those local yellow flowers that are planted along the highways across the country when we did our Beautify America program. I love that because my favorite color is yellow, too. (laughs) What would be the quote or a motto or something that you've used in your life that you would put on that yellow candle? I think it would be sometimes the greatest courage in the world is to get up and get dressed and go to work. Why do you say? Because we women have jobs that are of day, of the moment, of taking care. And sometimes, many times, You have to put aside any tiredness, any sadness, and you have to just get up, get dressed, and go to work. That's how we take care. So don't even second guess it. Just get moving and do your intention, what you're supposed to be doing. Exactly. You know, I wouldn't have thought of that from a woman from your day, but I think that whole statement resonates for us today as well. Well, you see... When I started out, I needed to develop my own purpose. I had no purpose, but we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Oh, yes, we will, for sure. But first, I want to take it from the beginning, and I'm really curious. 
How did you get the name Ladybird? Well, I was born December 22nd, 1912 in Karnak in East Texas, only brick house for miles around. And when I was born, my mammy, Alice Tuttle, was the first to wash me. She looked into my dark eyes and she says, why, she's as pretty as a ladybird. And that name stuck with me ever since. Aww. But wait a minute, I have to ask you a question. Did I just hear you say mammy, kind of like in Gone with the Wind? Oh, yes. The world was very much like post-Civil War days in its gentility, in its hierarchy. My father, Thomas Jefferson Taylor, had swept my mother, Minnie Lee Patillo, out of a fine family in Billingsley, Alabama, and settled her in Karnak, East Texas, the only brick house for miles around. He had a store that said dealer and everything. And he was in that part of the world. He built in everything, including politics. So let's get to the role that you played, because this is so interesting, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot of depth to this here. Did you have any role models to prepare you for being the vice president's wife and then the first lady? Well, not at all. My mother was a tall reserved lady of refinement. She wore quite a lot, large Panama hats with veils. She went to Chicago each year to hear the opera. She sometimes went to Battle Creek, Michigan for a cure. And then when I was six years old, she tripped over a small collie dog and fell down a long flight of stairs. She was pregnant and miscarried. Blood poisoning set in, and before I knew it, she was gone. Oh, my. So at six years old, then, I was gone. My older brothers, they're 11 and 8 years older than I, and they were away at school. So my father sent me to my mother's family, to my Aunt Effie Petillo. Now, Aunt Effie was the most otherworldly woman I had ever known. She painted. She played the piano. She taught me all about the wildflowers, and we would go and have imaginary visits among the fairies who lived out there. But she could not teach me practical things when I was in school, like what to wear, how to make friends. That certainly never happened. I don't think I ever met a woman who actually lived in the 20th century until I went to college in Austin, Texas, and I met my first real friend, Eugenia Barringer. Eugenia, she was like a catalyst in my life. She taught me to look and see what my talents were. She encouraged me, perhaps, to become a journalist. I must say I like that because I learned to use a camera. And I could go all the places Eugenia went, but I could stay behind my camera then didn't really have to come out and meet people. You know, it's because of Jean that I actually met Lyndon Johnson. I want to hear that story, but I do have a question for you first. It seems so courageous to even go off to college in Texas. How did you decide that that was going to happen? Most women at that time didn't really go to college yet. No, it was decided for me. I outgrew the school in Billingsley 
Now, when I was 13, but I was too young to really go for college, so I was put in a Episcopalian girls' school, and the people there were really kind to me, and they understood that I had never really had a mother, and they, with my father, decided that I would go to college in Austin. My father sent me off with a shiny black Buick. I was uh, 17 years old, and a charge account at Neiman Marcus, and while I may have looked rather sophisticated, I knew nothing of the world. I'd still say that was pretty courageous, even though you knew that that was what you were going to have to do, to go ahead and go and then make your way in the world is amazing. So you met Eugenia, and then you met Lyndon. Tell us that story. Well, after college, I had all manner of dreams of what I might do as a journalism. And Jean had encouraged me to take shorthand and type in. She got a job in a Congressman Kleberg's office in Austin, but I was still too frightened of the world. I went back home. And nobody had paid any mind to my father's house since my mother's death, and I decided that I would remodel it, which also gave me the opportunity to go to Austin often, and I was in Gene's office when this man came in. He was tall and dark and had more energy than any man I had ever seen except my father, and he had come there because he had a date with one of the girls in the office. He looked at me in a certain way, and he looked at his date, and then he looked at Jeannie and invited us all to come out with him, and then he took me home last. That's a scandal. Well, not really. He dropped me off properly at the hotel, and he asked, but the scandal was, perhaps, he asked me to meet him for breakfast in the hotel the next day, and I did. <laughs> I had an appointment with an architect first, and he waited for me during the appointment, and then he took me for a ride, and he told me the most amazing thing, all about his family, and his ambition, and his education, and we spent four or five days talking. I decided he should meet Daddy, and I brought him back to Karnak, and I could see Daddy was quite impressed by this fella. And then Lyndon had to go back with Congressman Kleberg to Washington. He was also in night school there, but he wrote to me and he telephoned me. And I got letters and calls every day. And he kept asking me to marry him. And I talked to my friends and they said, well, wait, you hardly know the man. And I went to talk to Jean in Austin again. And while I was there, Lyndon came for to the hotel early in the morning. I'm not at my best early in the morning. And he had gotten his friend, Dan Quill, who was a postmaster, to arrange a marriage license and a rector at an Episcopalian church. And for that afternoon, he said, take it or leave it. <laughs> Whoa, he really took control. How did you feel about that? Well, I suppose I was used to men taking control. And I was smitten with this tall bundle of energy. I called Jean and a few other friends, and they met us at the church. And 
I had a ring from the Sears and Roebuck across the street. I never did get to see the marriage license for years. I was afraid we were not legally married. I think it was until our 20th anniversary that his friend produced it for me. And there I was, a wife who had never cooked a meal in her life or had to raise a finger for anybody but herself. Well, it was clearly the right decision because you stayed married for quite a while. But how did you stay married to that bundle of energy that was Lyndon? Well, Lyndon decided that he would run for Congress. I borrowed against my inheritance to help him and some other people pitched in. And now I was given things to do on the campaign trail and I was given a purpose. My purpose was to keep my husband's shirts pressed and to talk to people and stand up and address crowds. I was good at the first. I learned how to do that, but I was not so good at the second. But I had a purpose. So how do you, when you have a purpose, fulfill what you're supposed to do? Now, Lyndon had always said, that it really was not important for you to know exactly how you are going to accomplish what you set out to do. You simply have to look inside yourself and see what your talents are and then use them to the best of your ability to get to fulfill the purpose you have set out to come to. Wow, that is a really interesting point because just as women of today, you're really not successful unless you drive to a certain goal. You have some type of vision. And I think what I'm hearing you say, Lady Bird, is you weren't necessarily sure how you were going to get there, but you knew what the purpose was. Yes, and that was the whole thing, to know what the purpose is. So if the purpose was to get votes, I decided I could take my car, my little black Buick, and drive a town ahead or two of where Lyndon was going to come through. And I would stop and I would get one gallon of gas. Now, in those days when you got gas, they wiped your windshield, checked the pressure in your tires, they checked your oil. While they were doing that, I would speak to the men, because I always men sit in the gas station, tell them who I was, who Lyndon was, hand out the literature, give them all a big handshake, tell them to vote for Lyndon, and drive on to the next gas station. I'm always better at that time talking to one or two people than the dozens or hundreds I was asked to. And that's how I fulfilled my purpose and how Lyndon and I got to Washington. So did you already have this strategy when you set off, or did it evolve as you stopped for gas and you saw an opportunity and said, hey, I'm going to spread the word, and then it became a plan? Then that was your strategy, your campaign plan. Well, it started because I could not fulfill the purpose of speaking to the group. Too many people. So it was a different way to get the same result. Exactly. There are often many ways, and I have learned that over my lifetime. Sometimes the world tells you, Madam, that tactic is not going to work. So you look to your talents. Well, what are my talents, and how can I use them to do this differently? 
When we got to Washington, for instance, a congressman's wife was supposed to have a lot of tea with other congressmen's wives, with the senators' wives, with the wives of the diplomatic corps. It was driving me mad to have <laughs> this tea. But then I saw that in politics, constituents come first. Constituents is spelled all in capital letters. So what did constituents need when they came to Washington? They needed a hostess to take them to Mount Vernon or the Lincoln Memorial or to see the cherry trees and blossom, things that I love and that I had a talent to learn about. And so in that way, my purpose in being a representative wife was to help his career and keep his constituents appreciating him. And if I could show our appreciation for them by taking them around, I met so many wonderful people. I learned so many wonderful things. It was my way of getting to the purpose by using my talent. You were so smart because you used what naturally you felt comfortable with and your skills. And not everyone has that skill of being a hostess and the social one-on-one and touring and all of that. So that was brilliant, Lady Bird. But I didn't know it was brilliant. I didn't know that anybody else could use it. Well, really had to take a deep breath was after Pearl Harbor, Lyndon, like many other congressmen, enlisted right away, and I knew that I was chosen to be um, continuity in his office. I did have some shorthand, and I could write a good letter. I don't think anybody expected much more of me than that. That's what women do, just what Jean had done back in Austin. But I soon saw that there were things that were not being done, and our constituents were going to suffer for it. People would write, and a frantic mother would want to know where her sailor son was, and a farmer was upset because he was afraid that the rural electrification project wouldn't go ahead because of the war. People needed roads, and they needed to know things about where taxes were going to help their particular part of our congressional district. And so I had to move into a whole new set of skills because my purpose was to be continuity. My purpose was to have things run as well and smoothly and for the benefit of our constituents as if Landon was there himself. Women were strong and powerful as wives at this time are not particularly in their own. And the amazing thing that happened is that I found that I could do this. I saw for the first time that I could actually, if I wanted to, earn my own living. I could live my own life. I could lead other people to do what they had to do. I certainly solved problems my own way. I could never use Lyndon's method. And if I was a squeaking wheel, I was a wheel that squeaked very politely. 
And that is a very good thing for your self-esteem when you understand that you might have a place in the world. Now, I have to tell you, at this time, I, I still didn't have any children. I had four miscarriages and a tubular pregnancy. But I was having a tremendously exciting, vital life. And that is good to know that you yourself, aside from a man, have some capabilities. I found that out rather to my amazement. Was all of your purpose defined by being Lyndon Johnson's wife? Well, I believe so at that time. Not so unusual for other women at that time. That's what I saw around me. But I must tell you that was about to change for me and for many other women. You see, Pearl Harbor happened. World War II started. And Lyndon, like many other congressmen, like many other American men, just went and volunteered for the Army and left their jobs. And Lyndon left me the job to be the continuity in his office. Now, I had some shorthand, and I had typing, and I could write a good letter. That's what women did in men's offices. But I soon found that things were not being done to help our constituents. Like, oh, a woman would write to us and frantically asking where her sailor son was. Or a farmer would ask, would he electrification of his farm be delayed because of the war? And people needed to know there was still tax money coming their way for roads and water, other projects. And I knew all of Lyndon's friends, all his network, and I knew how to pick up a telephone or go to their offices and talk to them. I mean, perhaps I was a squeaking wheel, but I was a squeaking wheel my way. I could never do it the way Lyndon did. And so we got things done. You know, you don't come across to me as having that bravado. Did you just feel like you had no choice but to step up, so you just did it? Yes, my purpose was to make the office continue the way it had when Landon was there. And that meant doing things for our constituents. And I found, as I did it, that I really could do it. It was, as Landon said, I didn't know when I started out exactly how I was going to accomplish my purpose. And I started with the talents I had, and I went on. And I realized if it was ever necessary, I couldn't make my own living. And that's a good feeling to have. That's very good for you and for your self-esteem and for your place in the world. I think you share a good message for all of us here. And that is, in the beginning, you might have questioned, but you did anyway. And then the success of having done that led to more confidence, which in turn led to a higher level of doing, and it just kept progressing from there. Well, yes. And it was so important to me to see that things were being done. A newspaper in our district said that instead of reelecting Landon to Congress in absentia, they should call a convention and nominate Mrs. Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> wow. 
It was wonderful because I didn't have any home base like other women did. I had had four miscarriages and a tubular pregnancy during the years of our marriage, but I realized I, by myself, had tremendously exciting, vital life, and I didn't have to have any home base, so to speak. And it's good to know that you yourself, aside from a man, have some capabilities, and I found that to my amazement, rather. And so how did things carry on from there? Well, Lyndon came home, and he thanked me profusely and profoundly, and then told me I didn't have to go down to the office anymore. But now you loved what you were doing. Yes, and it was not available to me anymore. I had lost my purpose, and so I decided that I would use my experience and want to be a journalist And I would find a newspaper in Austin, Texas, and instead I found a radio station. And I went down to Austin, and this radio station had uncollected bills and advertisers who never paid. And I used some knowledge that my Uncle Claude Patillo had given me about finance and how you had to collect your receivables, you know, to pay your bills, I put that radio station into a position where it was actually making money. But Lyndon wanted me to come home. Now, I had a choice to make. Did I stay in Austin, or did I go home to this man? And I decided I really loved him, and He told me more dreams that he would have about becoming a senator, and I had to find a new purpose. As it happened, I got pregnant. I got pregnant twice. I had my beautiful daughters, and I found that while I was home, I could still build more radio stations, and television was coming in, and I could manage my stations and my television stations and my family at the same time and it was wonderful so that became my purpose and I used all my talents to do that but now you did become one of the great women in politics of all time well in 1955 Landon had a big purpose he saw that the south could not continue segregated He saw that by being segregated, businesses would not come to the South. That population was leaving and going north. That the South was becoming the same kind of pariah it had been before the Civil War. And he started to change that. Of course, he had tremendous resistance, so much resistance that he had a heart attack. And they called me, and I rushed to the hospital. And you know, to see someone you love lying there, all gray, and I thought I might lose him. And I decided at that time that he needed my care. He needed my attention. And that I was willing to make my purpose achieving his purpose. Do you know that in 1957, Lyndon spent 32 days on a cart 
in the Congress trying to get the equal education passed. And I brought him meals and I brought him clean clothes. And then, of course, shortly after that, he was chosen as the running mate for John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And I met those Kennedy women. I was in some tall cotton. For the first time, I did what I had never done. I joined the Capitol Speakers Club. I was in my late 40s, and I took lessons in how to give a speech, how to organize, how to pace your delivery, how to wait for applause and laughter. And we hit the campaign trail. We certainly did that we won that election. And what a proud time that was, I'm sure. Yes, it was. It certainly was. I was so proud of Glendon and where we had come. And I will tell you that we went all around the world and we would be signing guest books. And in front of me would be people from other countries. A woman would be signing Lady This and Lady That. And I must tell you, I felt rather odd signing Lady Bird. (laughs) But that's what you were known as. That's right. That's what I was known as. I could never lose Lady Bird. (laughs) And I love the progression of your life story because you continued to look for more surmountable things, more things that challenged you that you could overcome. It started from the beginning, just having a purpose in the first place, and then building your confidence as you took over, and then going through the election, and then the radio stations and all of that. And your whole life was just building on top of itself and giving you more and more confidence. And I'm quite sure more and more pride, which then allowed you when you decided you wanted to switch your purpose to support your husband in the campaign, you were even a stronger woman at that point. Well, thank you for saying that, Susan, but it is. You can't stay at home in bed. You got to get dressed and go to work. All of this sounds great, but I don't think we can overlook the assassination. Yeah, the day had started out so lovely. There was sunshine and the streets were lined with people, families, children with flags and placards. And then suddenly there was this pop and Lyndon's secret service man came over the back of the car. He shoved me to the floor and put his body across Lyndon and I could barely breathe. And then we were going fast, so very, very fast. And then we stopped suddenly and the hustle did inside and I knew that we were in a hospital. And Lyndon said, go find Jackie and Nellie Connolly. Their husbands have been shot. So I wandered these long, white corridors until I found Jackie outside the operating room. She was quite alone. She looked like a wraith, as you might expect. And I hugged her. And then when I stepped back, I saw that her pink suit was still covered in her husband's blood, her gloves, and and one leg, and she said, I want them to see what they have done. You may have seen pictures of me on the airplane, standing next to Lyndon when he has taken the oath of office, but I'm not there. I have retreated to some place where none of this is happening, where it is quiet, and I am 
by myself instead of surrounded by people in mourning. It was a place I went to after my mama died, but I couldn't stay there very long because there were changes that had to be made. And there were changes of a domestic sort, housing, children, decorations for Christmas had to come down and mourning had to go up and we had to move. And the Kennedys and Mrs. Kennedy and her children, that was all needed attention. You could not stay in bed. You had to get up, get dressed, and go to work. And then in a very short time, Lyndon had to decide if he was going to run for president again. And he asked me, would I purpose myself to help him run for president. And I wrote to him, I said, Beloved, you are as brave a man as Harriet Truman or FDR Lincoln. You can go on to finish some peace and some achievement. Amidst all the pain, you are strong, patient, determined beyond words of mine to express. And I honor you for it. To step out now would be wrong for your country. And so I joined him in that struggle, and I found in that purpose something I had never, ever found before. And what was that? I decided I would have a whistle-stop campaign. Harry Truman had done it in the 40s. The train would leave Washington, D.C., go through the South, and come back. And we would stop at small towns and bring our message of change in the country, of bringing peace, of integrating everybody. But the men were not ready to get aboard the Ladybird Special. Senators were suddenly too busy. Congressmen couldn't see me. Now, I had the most wonderful press secretary. Her name is Liz Carpenter. And Liz was just a bundle of energy. And she said, no, Lady Bird, if the men won't help us, the women will do it. And for the first time, I had a team. I had a team with Liz. I had a team with Kennedy women. I had a team working with me. Ann Calabrese. Marjorie McNamara, Senator Byrd, he wouldn't come on my train, but his daughters did. And I found that while the mayor of a small town or the sheriff or commissioner of a county wasn't so willing to come forward, their wives were. They came from garden clubs and church groups and sewing circles. We started out on the Ladybird special. I remember we got to one town at six in the morning, and a woman came up on the back car where I was standing, and she shook my hand. She said, you know, I got up at two o'clock in the morning to milk all my cows and do my chores so I could come here with her. And I knew that I was the closest she would ever come to her government, but she considered herself an American, a citizen. She was proud to be part of this whole democracy and that women had to realize that and join in that 
and they were ready, willing, and able to do that very thing. Those four days are most proud of, the most fulfilling, the most wonderful days of my whole political life. Just as you were talking about the change in you when you found your purpose, that's exactly what you were doing for all of those women, too. Well, I tried. I had to find something to do now. Jackie Kennedy had set a very high bar with being the woman to redo the White House, the People's House. But there, what were my talents? My talents were knowing about wildflowers. And Effie. <laughs> yeah, Effie came forward in me. And so we started the Beautify America project. And then Lyndon passed the War on Poverty. And that started Head Start. And I learned, much to my consternation, that the little schools where the children were going were being threatened by men with guns and bombs. And so I went there. I went to say, hey, these are all our children, and we have to feed them, and we have to educate them. Come on, women. The men can't come forward with their guns and their bombs. You tell them who is in charge of these children. Women came out, and they did that. And they would form a ring, circle, around school where I was visiting. And I must tell you, there were many times when the face of a woman met the face of a man, and he took two steps back. Wow, that was courageous. The hardest part of that, though, face-to-face and meeting incivility, came during the Vietnam War. It was eaten lending alive everywhere we went, even outside the White House. Hey, hey, LBJ, harmony. It was awful. It was terrible. And I saw that he was shrinking. He was dying bit by bit. And so in March of 1968, I wrote into a speech that he was about to give, I will not seek nor will I accept the nomination of my party or president of the United States. I didn't know if he was going to read it. The, the speech began on television. And sure enough, that's what he said. And I just prayed that we could make it through almost another year. Because, you see, I found the wheelchair that Woodrow Wilson had used after he'd had a stroke in office. I knew that Lyndon could never do that, and I couldn't do it either. And we counted the days until we could leave the White House and go back to the hill country of Texas. That's what we did. And as you reflect back on that time... What would you say about all of that, the courage and the challenge and the horrors that you saw, but also the significant changes you made and the impact on the world? What would you say with all your wisdom to women of today? Women have more power today. Women have more team. 
more other women to stand with, more men who are willing to accept a woman, not just a member of the team, but a woman, a leader of the team. And so you must get up, get dressed, and get to work. (laughs) Find your purpose in what you need to do and your talents and your team. You know, I never knew when I started out that with Lyndon, we would achieve the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Open Housing Act of 68, 60 separate bills making the federal government an active partner in education, the War on Poverty with 40 separate programs, including Head Start, Medicare, and the Job Corps, the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, new clean air and water standards, increased parklands 15% and got a nuclear non-proliferation treaty signed and salt talk scheduled. And you just do that because that's your purpose. It's humbling to hear you list all of the accomplishments and you talk about having your purpose through life and it isn't easy, but look at by standing up getting out of bed every day, like you're saying, all that was able to be accomplished. Thank you, Sue. I'm so pleased that you allowed me, gave me this opportunity to tell this story and to tell the women of America how much I love them and how I pray that they create their purpose for themselves and fulfill it as well. Thank you so very much for spending your time with us, Lady Bird Johnson. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Sue. You have just heard about the life of Lady Bird Johnson, enacted by Rebecca Bloomfield. Rebecca has a passion for portraying the lives of famous women in American history. In fact, Rebecca, I believe you've actually met Lady Bird Johnson. Yes, I did, Sue. I was portraying Abigail Adams and was asked to do that at the Lyndon Johnson Library, and Mrs. Johnson invited me to have dinner with her. I thought it was like a Friends of the Library, and there'd be hundreds of people there, but there were only 16 people there. Lady Bird, Linda's speechwriter, who was now head of the library, Liz Carpenter, her press secretary, was there. One of the Rob granddaughters and her fiancé and two congressmen and their wives who had known Landon since 38. And they told stories about her that even the granddaughter didn't know about her courage and how remarkable a woman she was. And then I got access to the library to create this presentation. So you had done the presentation about Abigail, and they saw it, and then you got invited to dinner. That had to be incredible. It was. Did she have any idea or did you know at the time that you'd be doing the same thing for Lady Bird? No, I had to ask permission and I did. And then I got access to, very interesting, when I created Abigail, they were directly from her letters and her words and her thoughts and her feelings. But much of the news reporting and what was available superficially about Lady Bird was managed news. And... Often at one of these Head Start openings, it would tell about the flowers they gave her or who baked the cake. 
but not about what was going on outside. And fortunately, the library had news reports and were audiotaping people's recollections of Lady Bird and the Johnsons. And I got to hear from them how they interacted with her and what she gave to them. What an enriching and rewarding thing to do. It had to be so interesting to uncover all of that and then to be able to relay it to all of us. Because I'll tell you, interviewing Lady Bird, I mean, I felt like I really was. (laughs) Going back, (laughs) Gift Biz listeners, this is the third time Rebecca has been on the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. She has done her portrayal of Abigail Adams. That was back in episode 21. And we also did a wonderful woman named Elizabeth Meyer, who came over to America from Switzerland. So we learned all about her journey and the life of someone who decides that they're going to leave and go to an unknown land that we now inhabit. Both of those are going to be on the show notes page. Along with this, Rebecca, we've made kind of a little triad of historical stories now. I thank you so much for that. It's wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I'd love for you to share with us right now what else you do with your life. Talk a little bit about your professional career. Well, I get to work with a lot of women because my husband, Jerry Perlstein, I have a unique agency that offers health, life, long-term care, disability, and retirement programs to people who are independents, entrepreneurs, sole practitioners, artists. And I have a particular passion that every woman should have her own long-term care insurance, life and long-term care insurance. And so I go out among women, seeing what they do, seeing how we can keep them safe and give them the cash they need for a long and wonderful life. If someone wanted to know more about you from that angle, where should they go? They can go to our website, jpearlsteinltd.com. They can email me, rbloomfield, at jpearlsteinltd.com, and I'd be happy to talk about how a woman gets her purpose and keeps it going. There you go. Thank you so much. I think this was so important because I love the part of Lady Bird's story where she discovered that she needed a purpose in the first place, and then she kept defining it and revising it as things happened in her life. But she always still seemed to have that beacon of purpose, and that's what drove her the whole way. It's a great message for us. Gift Biz listeners, I challenge you to think and to really be able to very concretely define what is your purpose, because we can all accomplish great things here. And Rebecca, you have accomplished great things in portraying these women. We know them in a whole different way now than we might have by reading a little story here or there. You've really brought, for sure, Lady Bird as well as the others to life for us. Thank you. That's my purpose. There you go. Thank you once again, Rebecca. Bye-bye, Stu. Thank you. This episode is all wrapped up, but fortunately, your gift biz journey continues. Are you eager to learn more? Our gift biz gal has a free download just for you. Head over to giftbizunwrapped.com slash 12 steps to get your copy of the 12 steps to starting a profitable gift biz. Don't delay. Head over to giftbizunwrapped.com slash 12 steps today. And until next time, happy business crafting.